Well, hey everyone, you're tuned in to the Philippi Sermons Podcast. We're currently in a series through the book of Acts. If you want more information about our church, head over to philippichurchgp.com. There you can also find a link to our other Conversations podcasts, where we interview people and have Jesus-centered, Jesus-focused conversations. Hey, may the Lord bless you and speak to you as you take in His Word. All right, so Acts 22, we'll get to that in just a minute. So evangelism, sharing the gospel, it's something that I think a lot of us, we think of what it's going to be like in our head, and we kind of imagine like this really perfect scenario where one of our friends says, hey, Mike, you know, uh, would you tell me the gospel? And, and then Mike just sort of turns into Billy Graham all of a sudden, and he says all the right things, and uh, and then the person's just weeping, right? And they're just weeping, and then they pray the prayer. I mean, that happens all the time, right? Um, they pray the prayer, and this person gets baptized, and it's like, easy. That's, that's evangelism right there. Uh, that's never happened to me. Uh, maybe it's happened to some of you guys, but in reality, evangelism looks usually a little bit more like this. So when I was 16, I was in a band. Uh, it was a metal band, so I had hair like down to my shoulders in my face. I was the drummer. And, uh, oh, yeah, um, that's, that's me. So um, <laughs> we, we were a Christian band, loosely, a Christian band. I don't think I was a Christian but we were a Christian band, um, and we had kind of this desire to, you know, to tell people about Jesus. And um, so we mostly played Christian concerts. Christian concerts, everybody claps for you no matter what because they're all nice. Um, and then we we took this gig over in uh, Fort Jones. It was an opening for a few um, non-Christian secular like metal bands, uh, like pretty gnarly, pretty gnarly crowd. A lot of alcohol, a lot of just craziness, right? So we're like, yeah, sure, we'll we'll go and we'll tell them about Jesus. It'll be great. People will get saved. It'll be awesome. So we get in our van with our trailer, and we go down there, and we set up, and we're the opening gig, and there's probably about 100 people there. It's dark, and, uh, you know, it just, just smells terrible. And um, <laughs> we, we play our first couple songs. Everybody's kind of listening. They're, they're liking it. Uh, and then after the second song, our lead guy, Jeremy, he, he gets up. He's like, okay, i got to talk to you guys for a minute. He grabs his Bible, and he says, if you were to die tonight on your way home, where would you go? And he starts kind of giving this gospel spiel. And as he's talking, literally people start screaming from the stage, F you guys, hail Satan, get out of here with that Jesus, like screaming at us, literally, like the whole crowd basically starts booing us. And it was tense. It was intense. I mean, I'm sitting there on the drums. (laughs) What are we going to do? Like, uh, we still had three songs to play, right? So he like, you know, finished his thing and then sets the Bible down. We've never played those three songs faster. I mean, we, (laughs) we blitzed through those three songs, got our gear, went home. And that was like a really weird experience to, to think about that there is literally sometimes there's hostility towards sharing of the gospel you know we all have this idea of, of what sharing the gospel could look like but in reality a lot of times it's actually met with a much more hostile kind of response so our text this morning is essentially paul giving a defense as we'll see for the gospel he's giving a gospel presentation uh, but it's not really the kind of moment you would expect it's not kind of the, the crowd you would hope for. It's not really the response you would hope for. So I think maybe there's some principles that we can glean from this about how to uh, share the gospel in sort of less than favorable circumstances. How to share the gospel in less than favorable circumstances. And on your handout, there's basically four points that we're going to make. I think Paul 
um, exemplifies for us, and you can fill them in as we go. So we'll get to that in a minute. So let's dive into the text. So we're going to finish up chapter 21 and then get into 22, starting in 37. Now let me get you back into kind of what's going on. If you remember, Paul is back in Jerusalem. He uh, has been collecting an offering on his third missionary journey throughout all the Gentile regions. And uh, he finally gets to Jerusalem, brings the offering to um, the elders, James, and the potentially 70 elders of the Jerusalem church. And they rejoice. They kind of share what God has done both in Jerusalem and throughout the Gentile world. And, uh, and then they kind of bring up this, this awkward thing to Paul where they essentially say, hey, there's people, Christian Jews, that think you're teaching against the law of Moses or, or sort of um, telling Jewish Christians or Jewish Christians that they don't need to circumcise their children or that, that they're wrong to even. So to refute this, Paul and James kind of cook up this idea to, um, for Paul to go in and basically take a Nazarite vow with these four other men. So for a week, Paul's in the temple with these other guys, making the sacrifices, making the, the consecration. Um, and as he's in the temple, he gets spotted by some of the Ephesian Jewish believers from Asia Minor, which we would consider Turkey. They recognize Paul because they used to beat him up in Ephesus when he was there preaching the gospel. They go, hey, there's that guy. There's Paul. So they instantly start a riot. The reason they're there is because it's Pentecost. There's all kinds of, of, of Jews who are in uh, Jerusalem for Pentecost. It was kind of a, a, um, a pilgrimage at that point. So they start this riot. They basically grab all of the people around and they start throwing accusations um, at Paul and they basically uh, beat the snot out of him. So verse 37 is Paul was about to be brought into the barracks. Oh yeah, here's what happened. So the Romans come down and they basically save his life by arresting him. He's, they're, they're trying to beat him, probably going to beat him to death. The Romans insert themselves, arrest him, and lead him away. He was so beat up, they literally had to carry him up the stairs. And then verse 37, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? They said to him, are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. Now, we read that without a lot of historical background and historical context. We're like, what are you talking about? Um, the Romans basically ask Paul, uh, or pardon me, Paul asks if he can speak. He speaks in, um, in Greek, okay, because Paul actually was probably trilingual. Uh, he may even have known more languages than that. He knew Greek, he knew Aramaic, he knew Hebrew. Um, he speaks in Greek, and it kind of confirms what these Romans are thinking, that Paul is actually this Egyptian man um, who was part of a group called the Assassins. Now, this is kind of interesting. Josephus, the historian, records this, um, that basically 30,000 men, supposedly, uh, had marched up to the gates of Jerusalem because this man, who they think Paul is, um, was basically saying that the walls were going to fall down and they were going to conquer Jerusalem. Uh, it was kind of this messianic idea. So they get to Jerusalem and Rome basically squelches it, stops it, um, wipes him out, and the leader gets away. They don't know where he's at. And apparently these guys think that Paul is the leader. They think Paul is this guy that was trying to, 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 to lead this assault on Jerusalem. And the reason they think that is because he speaks Greek. In Egypt, believe it or not, the primary language at this time was Greek, and that goes back to Alexander the Great and his conquering of the ancient world and all those kinds of things. So they, they're confused. They're not sure who Paul is. They think maybe he's this, this guy, this leader of the assassins. And then 39, says, Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, 
a citizen of no obscure city. So Paul responds to them by saying, hey, actually, I'm a citizen of a Greek city um, that is self-governed called Tarsus in Cilicia. It was kind of north of, um, uh, north of Syria, just above kind of the, the Mediterranean there. So uh, Paul basically responds by saying, hey, no, 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 I'm not this Greek guy. I am a citizen of Tarsus. Now, just a quick side note here in regards to evangelism. A lot of times I don't think we realize that we're starting off in the red with people. Like you're not only having to answer for your own Christian faith a lot of times. You're having to answer for the way that your Christian faith is perceived by everybody else. We have these really sweet neighbors um, that live across the street. They're totally de-churched. Like they don't, they don't think they've ever been to church in their life. And uh, they ask me the question everybody always asks. So what do you do? You know? And I'm like, well, I'm a pastor. We just planted a church a few months ago. And he's like, oh, oh. And now you got to know, we live on 10th Street. We're like two houses up from the big Catholic church on 10th Street. What is it? St. something? St. Anne's? St. Anne's? Um, so we're, we're like a couple streets. And he kind of kind of looks confused. And then he looks over at the Catholic church. He goes, you know, there's a church right there. <laughs> like, oh, I don't know. Think about that. Like, it, is, it, it was really profound to me because, I mean, first of all, he's thinking, why would you plant a church when there's a big Catholic church right there? A lot of people don't even know the difference. A lot of people that we witness to, evangelize to, like they don't know the difference between Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, Catholic, Christian. They probably are lumping most of them together. Um, they probably have had a bad taste in their mouth from Christians doing things that, that hurt their feelings or hurt them or came on strong before. So a lot of times, before we can even get to the point where we clarify the gospel, a lot of times we have to undo a lot of the wrong thinking that's been done about the gospel and about Christians. And Paul's kind of having to do that. Here with the Romans, he's like, hey, I'm not even this guy that you think I am. I'm not some assassin leading this, um, this messianic group trying to, to, to take out Jerusalem. That's, that's not me, right? But what's really interesting in, in, in verse 39, here's where we get our first point, is Paul's response. Look at 39, the second half. He says, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given them permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand, to the people. Now, I need you to see this in your head. Okay, imagine that you're in the temple in Jerusalem. There's hundreds of people everywhere. A mob, a riot starts. They literally beat you to a pulp, so much so that the police have to come and arrest you just to save your life. And as they're leading you into this little police station down the area, you're about to go in the door and be safe. You literally stop and say, hey, can I talk to the mob? <laughs> Is that cool? Can I stand up here just for a second? And I just want to, t- I just want to talk to them. Uh, I wouldn't do that. If that were me, I'd be like, uh, get me out of here, man. Like me at the concert, right? I'm like, pack up my drums, let's go home, right? That's not Paul's disposition. That's not how he thinks. He's like, this is an opportunity. So if you want to fill in number one uh, in your, your hand out there, point number one is to capitalize. Capitalize on the moment. Paul capitalizes on the moment here. He, he sees this as an opportunity. He doesn't see this as just something terrible. Uh, I think many of us have maybe, hopefully, seen that reality with coronavirus. Like We're like, man, this is terrible. This is bad. How could this possibly be redeemed in any way? But in many ways, it's given us new opportunities to do new things. Paul was opportunist, an opportunist uh, as a missionary. But you got to ask the question here, what, what's, what is he thinking? Why does he want to talk to these guys now? I think he's thinking about this. He's thinking about the fact that not only are there people in this mob that want to kill him, but there's other people in the mob. There's other people in the crowd. There's other people who are just standing around and heard the commotion and wondered what's going on, and they're, they're kind of listening. Paul has their attention right now. He has their attention, and he doesn't want to waste 
that. He sees that as a great opportunity. He sees these people that are so angry at him, and he sees, like Christ did, he sees um, people needing a physician. And he knows he has the message to give to them. He never missed a gospel opportunity. So let me say this. The best evangelical or evangelical, pardon me, the best opportunities to share the gospel are facilitated, not manipulated. Okay, they're facilitated, not manipulated. Man, we aren't stupid, okay, as humans. We can tell when someone is trying to sell us something. We can tell, like, you you know, I used to sell jeans, and it was awkward. It's like someone walk in, and I just try to, like, talk to them. Hey, how you doing? How's the day? How's the mall? Yeah, what's for lunch? Cool. Hey, check these pants out. You know, and it's like they can just tell the second that you're trying to sell them something. And they can tell when you're trying to lead them to the point where you can sell them something. I think as Christians, like, we, we, we need to be intentional in evangelism, but we look at people and we think, okay, how am I going to get into this conversation where I can give them my spiel? And the second you do that, it feels awkward, and people know it. Paul didn't create this situation, did he? The situation happened. He capitalized on the situation. He saw an opportunity to share the gospel. He facilitated it. He didn't manipulate it. He didn't create the moment, but he stepped into it. First Peter 3.15 says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. You do it with gentleness, or yet do it with gentleness and respect. Peter's referring there to sharing your faith in, in, as though it may come at you when you're not expecting it. It may come at you when you weren't anticipating it. It may not be something that you planned to do in that moment. I don't know about you guys, but a lot of times when I get opportunities to share, it just comes and then I have to make a decision. Am I going to step into it or am I going to run away from it? Uh, it just comes. We need to be people that are ready to take on those conversations. Uh, and by the way, that doesn't mean that you don't prepare. It doesn't mean that you don't prepare. Sometimes people ask, how many hours do you spend on a sermon? Uh, and I'll say well, like 15 to 20 hours and then 15 years <laughs> of studying and following and loving Jesus. Um, you know, your preparation for evangelism uh, may be some intentional study, but it's also your entire life. We're always preparing for evangelism. We're always thinking through things. We're always seeking the Lord so that theologically we're ready to have conversations uh, with people. It's interesting. We think of sharing the gospel as witnessing, but that wasn't actually the Great Commission. The Great Commission wasn't to go witness as though it's something we go do on Friday nights at seven o'clock when the bar's open. Okay, it's not something we go do, it's something we are. It's, it's the fact that we are witnesses. And you're maybe saying, what's the difference? The difference is if I go witness, then that's something that I do at a certain time and I don't do other times. It's something that I think I can somehow control when it's going to happen. Okay, and grab my, mega home, my megaphone or whatever, and I'm going to go down and I'm going to witness. That wasn't the call. The call was to be witnesses, meaning that, that, that you have been a witness to the life of Christ in your life, and you are always sharing that through who you are, not just when you go decide to do it. Does that make sense? So number one, capitalize. Number two, contextualize. Contextualize to the hearer. This is important. Look at uh, verse 40. So when... He had given him permission. Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, brothers, and we'll, we'll, we'll pick it up there just in a minute. The word defense there, you might 
underline. Brothers and fathers, he says, hear the defense that I now make for you. The defense there is apologia. It's where we get our word apologetics, um, which I think sometimes is a confusing word. I think apologetics, think of I'm sorry, I'm apologizing. But in fact, apologetics, we just lost one of our greatest apologists, uh, Ravi Zagarias. Um, Apologists give a defense for the faith. So it says here that Paul addresses them giving his defense. Now, Paul's not giving his defense for the accusation that they're trying to kill him for. He's giving a defense of the faith. He's giving a reason, a logical reason for faith. You know, there's a misconception that faith is something that is meant to be blind. That when you're sharing your faith, you're trying to talk somebody into just blindly choosing to do something. That's the perception, I think, of Christianity. But in fact, when we share the faith, we're not just trying to convince someone to believe in something that doesn't make sense. We're actually giving them a logical witness to the risen Christ so that they can make a logical decision. Their faith isn't just meant to be rooted in feeling or experience. It's meant to be rooted in reason and truth. And so Paul stops and he makes a logical, reasonable defense for Christ and how Christ is encountered and impact him. It's really worth noting that. Now, I want you guys to see this in terms of the word contextualize, that Paul makes every effort to connect with these guys and to relate with them on, on their level. He makes every effort to connect with them and relate with them. I want you to see that as we look through the passage. So first of all, he connects with them linguistically, verse 2. When they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, that was actually more than likely Aramaic. That was the, the language of Palestine, the language of that area. They became even more quiet. So it's interesting. Paul speaks up to them and he starts speaking in their language. And it actually shuts the crowd up. Now, why does it shut the crowd up? It shuts the crowd up because hardly anybody out of this group actually speaks this language. Um, if he was, in fact, speaking Hebrew, it's known that most of the diaspora Jews, the Jews that were dispersed throughout the Greek world, they didn't even know Hebrew. Okay, they, 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 even uh, Philo of Alexandria was one of the greatest first century uh, Jewish scholars. He couldn't even read the books of Moses in Hebrew. So the fact that Paul, who would have had probably the equivalent of two doctorates and speaks three languages, gets up and starts speaking their native language, either Hebrew or maybe Aramaic, it, it actually impresses them. Um, and what it does is it signals to them, hey, I'm actually one of you guys. I actually know your language. So he's connecting with them linguistically. He also connects with them ethnically and geographically. Notice in verse 1, he said, brothers, fathers. That's like an endearing address. He's, he's talking to them as though they're family. And then in verse 3, he says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia but brought up in this city, in Jerusalem. He's saying, I'm one of you guys. I'm part of you. I understand where you're coming from. He connects with them religiously as well, if you look on. He says, uh, I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, who was one of the most prevalent, uh, prolific rabbis of his day under the school of Hillel. According, he says, to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as you all are this day. So he says, look, I, I know what you know. I believe what you guys believe. I understand what you guys understand. I'm coming from a position of understanding you. I get where you're coming from. He's relatable. Verse four, I persecuted, he says, this way. That's another word for Christianity back then. It was one of the first names of Christianity. I persecuted this way, verse four, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. 
as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers. I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So what's he doing here? He's, he's relating with their anger towards him. He's saying, hey, what you guys are doing to me here? I used to do that. I used to do that. He's not stepping back self-righteously going, I can't believe you guys. I can't believe you guys are trying to kill me. He's saying, you guys want to talk about trying to kill Christians? I was the chiefest of, of Christian killers. He's like, I was on my way to Damascus to kill more Christians. I had gotten orders from the Sanhedrin and permission to go kill and arrest as many Christians as I possibly could. You want to talk about failure. You want to talk about sin. You want to talk about struggle. He says, I know all about it. In fact, I've gone further down that road than you guys have, is what he says. Is that how we witness? Is that how we witness? Do, do we witness in such a way that says, hey, I see what you're doing in your life. I used to do it. I see what you're doing in your life. I actually did it to a degree that you maybe haven't even experienced. And let me tell you where it goes. Let me tell you where it leads. That's what Paul's doing. He's connecting, relating with his audience. He knows where they're coming from. He understands how they're thinking. So there's some principles that I think we can learn and how we contextualize our gospel mission. We, we need to know who we're talking to. We need to know who we're talking to. We need to consider the way that they think when we share the gospel with them. How are they perceiving? Now, how do we do that? We listen. We listen. This is something that I, I think as Christians we could do a lot better at. Is instead of just waiting to speak, that we listen to non-Christians. Because we want to understand the way that they think, the way that they process, the way um, that they're living in order to better be able to contextualize, to be able to better speak to them clearly. We find commonality with them. You know, it's interesting. Have you guys seen, I know everyone's talking about it, the show, The Chosen. Have you guys seen that yet? Uh, okay, homework. Watch it. Okay, it's on YouTube, The Chosen. I'm not a fan of Jesus movies. They're usually really dumb because Jesus is super good looking and speaks in an English accent and it's just weird, right? But this one is really good. It's really good. We've watched it twice. Uh, it's brought me to tears and I'm not an emotional person. The reason I think this is so good is because they portray Jesus as a regular guy. He's just a regular guy. And, and, you're, and, and you're thinking, well, but was he a regular guy? Well, yes. <laughs> he, he was fully God. But he was also fully man. We do an, a disjustice, uh, a disjustice, injustice, an injustice to Jesus when we portray him as someone who is unrelatable, because he wasn't unrelatable. In this show, they portray him as laughing, making jokes, dancing, saying silly things, being goofy. That's stuff that I've never seen in a movie before about Christ. And what it's done is it makes Jesus feel like he's someone we'll never get to be like. It makes Jesus feel like he's someone that we'll never actually be able to relate with because he's just all divine. When you evangelize, people need to see the humanity in you. And I'm sure, if you're like me, you have plenty of it. <laughs> okay? There's plenty of humanity for you to show. They need to see the humanity in you in order to see that, that, that you actually are just as sinful as them. That, that, that you actually are, are just as broken as them. But they also need to see the divinity in you. They need to see God in you. They need to see God working in you. If we're, if we're refusing to show our humanity to people, we're never going to connect with them. If we're only trying to show the part that God has, has worked on and refined and not the part that he hasn't, they'll never feel like they can, uh, they can buy into what we're giving them. I love that Paul, in this text, he relates with their sin. 
he relates with their sin. He says in verse 20, if you skipped, just skip ahead a little bit. He says in verse 20 that I, when the blood of Stephen, remember from Acts chapter 6, when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving, watching over the garments of those who killed him. I love how honest he is. He's not hiding the fact that he was a Christian killer, that he was a murderer. He's just straight up honest. You guys want to talk about being angry. You want to talk about being a mob. I killed Stephen. I was part of that. I was complicit in that. He's open and honest about his failings. I think one of the biggest hurdles between us and evangelism is our fear of letting people see that we're still sinners. Because we think that somehow that's going to it's going to it's devalue our message. But in reality, it actually strengthens our message because it shows people that, hey, I know you're a sinner. So am I. God is still working on me. Paul's saying, I understand why you guys want to kill me. I used to want to kill Christians too. But let me tell you what happened. He sets the table through honesty, humility. I love that. So not only does he capitalize, and not only does he contextualize, but he also thirdly, he centralizes. Centralize the gospel is what we're to do. Centralize the gospel. It wasn't just about how he said it, which was what we just looked at. It's also about what he said. It's also about what he said. I want to look now at the message, the substance of Paul's message, and I want you to see what he prioritized in his message. So let's read it together, and then I'll make a few, a few comments. Verse 6. As I was on my way and drew near... To Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. If this sounds familiar, it's because Paul's, uh, this story has been in Acts before, Acts chapter 9, Luke tells it. Now Paul's telling the story for himself. 7, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? He said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise, go into Damascus. There you will be told uh, all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came to Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And when I had returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple. I fell into a trance and saw him, that is Christ, saying to me, Make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, I know that's repeat content. We've looked at that before, and that's why I just chose to read the whole thing. But let me just point out a couple of things here about Paul's message. Okay, first of all, I want you to notice how personal Paul's message is. How personal it is. The thrust of what he's getting at here is not just truths, 
It's also his experience. Now, in the church, sometimes we pit those two things together. The charismatics seem to sort of emphasize sometimes experience. And the conservative, reformed, maybe people tend to emphasize truth or theology. I think we do a disservice to separate those two things. Paul's gospel message comes packaged in both experience and theology. He's communicating what happened in his life, how Christ encountered him. Now, let me just speak from experience here. You can argue into the night till you're blue in the face with all of the right apologetic arguments. But at the end of the day, a lot of time, what it is that really perks people's ear is your story. It's how Christ actually affected, impacted you personally. Would you agree? It's not always just the right zinger apologetic argument. Like, well, let me tell you about this. Let me tell you that. A lot of times it's, let me tell you my story. And that's exactly what Paul does. He says, let me show you what a wretch I was. Let me show you how sinful I was. Let me show you the track that I was on. And let me show you how Christ encountered me, impacted me, and changed my life. will never be the same. But that wasn't it. It wasn't just his experience. It was also his message, right? It was also his message. It was also his theology. If you just give people your experience, that's not enough. Okay, It's not enough to just say, here's what God has done in me. They'll say, good for you, right? Because faith is like a pair of shoes, right? You buy them, they fit you. Don't try to make me fit them. Wear them, right? I saw that quote this morning. It's like, that's how a lot of people think. That's great. Glad you had that experience. I don't need it. So it has to be more than just our experience. But what Paul does is he actually uses his experience as a container to package the truth of the gospel. He says, let me, let me communicate my theology through my experience. Because nothing tunes people in more than a story. It's funny, when I'm preaching, I can just tell when people are like, Meh. and then I'll like tell a story. And everybody's like, Whoop. like they're back. <laughs> I mean, it's just crazy, right? So like, uh, so I try to like trickle stories during my sermon just because I get completely bored. But that's what Paul does. He takes the vehicle of his story, but his story is not just a bunch of subjective emotional stuff. It's real theology. I want you guys to see that. Because remember, Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation. So it's the message itself that saves. Amen? It's the message itself. And the, the gospel is news. What is news? News is simply the exclamation of a reality. It's the, the substance of what we communicate that saves. It's the gospel message that saves. And the gospel message is what Christ has done and who he is. That's why Paul was not ashamed of it. So I want you to see now what the theology of Paul's message was. Because his message was a saving message. And I want you to see that every facet of his message had to do with Christ. Christ is the center of our message. He is the center of our message. So first he, he points out that Christ is God. Look at verse 6 a little bit more closely. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven. Okay, what is that signaling? God is speaking. This is a heavenly vision shown around me. So God is speaking. Yet, in verse 7, he says, And I fell to the ground, heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, Listen, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Now, interesting to note, this is the only place that in Paul's story where it's mentioned specifically that he is Jesus of Nazareth. 
Luke left it out in Acts chapter 9, but Paul, I think, strategically inserts it. The reason is because he is communicating that Christ is God and is man. It's essential to the doctrine, the theology, the the gospel-saving message of Paul is that they understand that this wasn't just God, it was God and it was Jesus of Nazareth. Remember that guy? Okay, they would have remembered. They would have remembered the whole thing that happened something like 20 years back when this Jesus of Nazareth came. It's important that we communicate that our Lord is not just man, he is God, and he is not just God, he is man. And when he went to heaven, he took his humanity with him. His act was to bring heaven and earth back together in one. That's essential to our message. You're saying, why does that matter? Why does it matter that that Jesus is God and man? Okay, why can't we just agree with our, our Mormon friends and say, well, he wasn't really fully God. He was a created being. I'll tell you why it matters. Because only God can save and only God can forgive sin. But only man can atone for man's sin. And only man can relate with man. Does that make sense? He becomes the mediator of heaven and earth. He brings the two back into unity, being fully God and fully man. In our gospel message, we must proclaim the deity, the lordship, the godness of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus. It's essential. It's essential to our message. The second thing he says in his message is that Christ is the Messiah. Look at verse 14. And he said, God of our fathers appointed you to know this will and to know his will, to see, listen, the righteous one. That is clearly messianic language and it wouldn't have been lost on this Jewish audience. The righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. So Paul is making sure that these guys know that the Messiah is Christ and Christ is the Messiah. You're saying, why does that matter? It matters because all of the nationalistic and prophetic and messianic expectations that these people have, basically you could just say all their expectations, are fulfilled in Jesus. Okay, And and we need to preach Christ that way. We may not be preaching Christ to a bunch of Jews in the temple, but we preach Christ as the ultimate fulfillment to all of the longings, all of the expectations, all of the needs of all of humanity, all of the brokenness. He is the answer to it. That is part of the message. He preaches Christ as resurrected. Do you notice that? He preaches him as resurrected, and that matters to our gospel message. He preaches Christ as eternally connected to the body of Christ. Look at verse 7. Verse 7, he says, I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Is that what he says? Just making sure you guys are listening. Come on, what does he say? You're persecuting me. You're persecuting me, Paul. Why does Paul mention this? He mentions it because he wants these guys to know that part of the gospel is that you are not just saved from something. You're saved into something. You're saved into the body of Christ that Christians actually are one in the same with Jesus. We are grafted and we are his bride. We become one with him. And therefore, Jesus' bone to pick with Paul was that he was persecuting me. He points out that Christ is the exclusive path to forgiveness. We see this in verse 16. Why do you wait? Ananias says, rise and be baptized, Paul. Wash away your sins, calling on his name. Clearly, 
Clearly, the salvation is in the name of Jesus. That was part of Paul's gospel message. Some people will tell you that you don't need to declare that when you preach the gospel. It's not important. You don't need to say that you can only get saved in Jesus. As long as people have faith, they're good. Is that true? No. The faith must be in the name of Christ because the name of Christ represents the work of Christ. And the work of Christ is what sets you free, what saves you, what deals with your sin, what purchases you, what redeems you, restores you. The salvation is in no other name than the name Christ Jesus. For there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and there is no other way except by me. The gospel is Jesus. He is the way. Paul wasn't baptized just to be baptized. He was baptized in the name of Jesus. And one last thing. I want you to see that Christ, and this isn't on your outline yet, I'm not quite there. Christ was also the one doing the saving. Do you notice that? Was Paul searching? Was Paul seeking? Was Paul looking to find Christ? Or did Christ find Paul? Did Christ find Paul? Theologians call this a monergistic emphasis, meaning that it was a one-way reaching by God. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul didn't have to make a choice. I'm not going Calvinist here. I'm just telling you, who did the pursuing? Who pursued Paul? Come on. Who pursued Paul? Jesus pursued Paul. Paul wasn't pursuing Jesus. In fact, he was trying to go kill the body of Jesus. Jesus found Paul. Now, that's good news. It's good news because it means that, that the gospel is that Jesus finds you. It's about his life. It's not about you making the right decisions. It's about him making the perfect life decisions and you saying yes to receiving that grace. That is the gospel. Do you understand that when you're sharing the gospel with people, they are exhausted from trying to get their stuff together. They're exhausted from, they hate themselves like we all do because they're constantly failing. I can't do it. I can't get it done. I can't be the person I want to be. I'm not as successful as I want to be. I always screw up. My marriage is, is struggling. I'm not a good parent. I, I'm struggling at work. The gospel comes in and says, hey, your identity has nothing to do with any of that because you are saved not by what you do, but what has been done for you. That is a freeing message for the lost. If you come to the lost and you say, let me give you one more thing to suck at, then you're just putting more bondage on them. They already hate their life. They already hate themselves. And if you say, hey, just come to church and do better and you'll be better, then you're just giving them more bondage. The gospel is says, let me take all of that weight off of you because Christ bore it for you. The freedom comes in reminding that Jesus saved Paul. Paul didn't save Paul. Jesus found Paul. Paul didn't find Jesus. And make no mistake, Paul makes that central in his message, and we have to remember that as well. Lastly, number four in your outline, prioritize. Prioritize faithfulness over outcome. Prioritize faithfulness over outcome. Because I want you to see, guys, uh, it's easy for me to sit up here and tell you, here's how you evangelize, here's how you evangelize, and you go, oh, okay, I'll go do it the way Sam did, or Sam said, and then you're going to go do it, and then if somebody doesn't get saved, you're going to go, I must have done it wrong. Okay, look at Paul's result. 22, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. <laughs> I've never heard someone say that to anyone. Have you ever heard that? Away with you from the earth. It's kind of funny. Uh, For he should not be allowed to live. 
And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, just so you know, that's Jewish speak for we hate you, we hate your guts, and we're mad, okay? Flinging dust in the air, ripping their garments. This is just like their cultural way of expressing intense anger. And we're, gonna, we're actually going to stop there, okay? We're going to stop there. I know it's a funny place to stop, but you'll see why next week. We're going to stop there. Paul's response, or their response to Paul, was not favorable. There was no, I see that hand, I see that hand. The lights weren't low. There wasn't a fog machine. Nobody came down. The baptismal wasn't full. They want to kill him. They still hate him. Okay? Um, Now, why am I saying that? First of all, you you need to remember that the message that you preach, even though it is the best news in the world, it's incredibly offensive to the lost. You you basically just told them the thing they've been living for their whole life is a fake God. (laughs) Themselves. Have you been living for yourself your life? Actually, that's going to get you only to hell. That's offensive. And, and now we live in a culture that, that anything short of tolerance, where every faith view is equal, is basically considered bigotry, being ununderstanding, obtuse, fat-headed, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> I actually do have a large head. Um, so in reality, it's offensive. Like, you got to realize that. And that doesn't mean that we go out of our way to offend people when we don't need to. But that means that you have to understand the gospel is offensive to the lost. It is. That's the reality. But I want you to see that Paul did not root his resolve to share the gospel in the results or he wouldn't have kept going. He he didn't, his fuel in the tank for sharing the gospel wasn't the results. It was faithfulness. It was faithfulness. He was doing it because he loved Jesus and therefore he loved the lost. And he was doing it because he was supposed to, because the one that saved him asked him to and called him on this mission. Listen to Paul's words. We'll close here. Listen to Paul's words in 2 Timothy 4, 5. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am ready, remember this is at the end of Paul's life, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. In other, my, in other words, my whole life was just a drink offering. It was, it was an offering dumped out unto the glory of God. And the time of my departure has come, he says, and I have fought the good fight and I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you hear in Paul what was driving him in that? It was a desire to please the Lord. It was a desire to please the Lord. Listen, this is important. If you worship the mission, you will hate the mission and you will hate your life. If you worship Christ, the mission will come naturally. One of the sne- we talked about idols last week. One of the sneakiest idols in the church is mission. Because how could it possibly be evil? But people sacrifice their walk with the Lord for the mission every day. Not because the mission is bad, but because they've taken it out of the place it was meant to be in. They made it their God. Our God is Christ. The mission is our calling. Don't get too confused. Know who you are and you'll know what to do. Better yet, know whose you are and you will know what to do. Paul knew whose he belonged, whose he was. He knew who he belonged to. Therefore, he knew what his mission was. But the mission was not his God. His satisfaction was in Christ and the mission was a bonus.
mission is a result of our identity. It is not our identity itself. I want to end with a quote from John Piper, and then we'll get into discussion. He said, have you ever wondered what it feels like to have a love for the lost? This is a term we use as part of our Christian jargon. Many believers search their hearts in condemnation, looking for the arrival of some feeling of benevolence that will propel them into bold evangelism. I just really related with that concept. Lord, I want to love the lost. How do I love the lost? It will never happen, he says. It is impossible to love the lost. You can feel deeply for an abstract or a concept. You can't feel deeply for an abstract abstraction or a concept. A concept. You can't feel deeply for an abstraction or a concept. It's kind of like trying to love your kids before you meet them. Yeah, you're, you're trying to, to to imagine them, but it's hard to love an abstract or a concept. You would find it impossible to love deeply an unfamiliar individual portrayed in a, po- a photograph let alone a nation or a race or something as vague as all lost people. Here's what he says. Don't wait for a feeling or love in order to share Christ with a stranger. You already love your heavenly father, and you know that this stranger is created by him, but separated from him. So take those first steps in evangelism because you love God. It is not primarily out of our compassion for humanity that we share our faith or pray for the lost. It is, first of all, out of our love for God. I just thought that was really good. A lot of us don't share because we don't have a love for the lost. It must be out of our love for God that we share. I would add to that too, you know, it's, it's hard to love, like I said, it's hard to love your kids when you haven't met them. It's hard to love lost people when you don't know them, right? When you think lost people, where does your mind go to? Does it go to some kind of an idea or a group out there? that you don't know, you can't love that. Love lost people because you know them, because you care about them, because the thought of imagining that person in eternal torment absolutely keeps you up, (laughs) because we want them to come to Christ. We must know the lost in order to reach the lost. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Acts 22. Thank you for Paul's example of how to share our faith. Thank you that, Lord, um, he did it well, but we know he did it well because he had your spirit in him. We know that we can do it well if your spirit is in us. We know that, Jesus, you said uh, that when we were asked, that, Lord, you would speak through us, that your spirit would give us the words. We pray that we would be ready in season and out of season, that we would not go witness, but we would be witnesses, or that it would be part of who we are daily, Father. Thank you so much for this grace this morning to be able to gather, to hear the gospel. Lord, I pray that each person in here, each person out there listening, Lord, would just breathe in your grace and breathe out our sin. Breathe in your forgiveness and breathe out our failures. God, to be restored once again, minute by minute, by your grace and mercy, Lord. God, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.